Masechet Ketubot of Pe Dalid. And Mishnah is discussing a case where a husband wants to relinquish some of the rights that he normally has over his wife's property that she brings into the marriage. Normally, a husband will inherit his wife's property, Nechseh Melog, if she dies first. But let's say a husband says, I relinquish that right. I have no claim in your property in your lifetime and even after your death. According to Tanakama, that condition is effective, and if she dies, the property will go to her family. He will not get it. However, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel disagreed uh, because he says, "En adam matne a person cannot make a condition against the, the, the against the Torah. It is not valid. And since the Torah says that a husband." does inherit his wife. Therefore, even if a person makes a condition, it's invalid, and the husband will inherit that property. Okay, we discussed this clause. Rav, the Amorah says, we follow halacha, not like Tanakama, but rather like Rashbag, and he does get the property and does inherit the property, except that Rav says, I agree with his bottom line, even though I disagree with the reasoning. All right, so now we have to explain what this means. We're going to go through a few iterations of what Rav means by that, and we'll come to a clarification by the end. What does it mean he agrees with the bottom line, but not for the same reason? Perhaps it means that the bottom line is like Rashbag, that if she dies first, the husband does, in fact, inherit the land. But, but not for Rashbag's reason. Whereas Rashbag says, if someone makes a condition against the Torah, the condition is invalid. That's why, and that's his reason why he inherits her. Whereas Rav thinks that if it's a Deoraita law and he makes a condition, the condition does work. A person can make a condition against the Torah. But Rav thinks, But here's the thing. Rav thinks that the law that a husband inherits his wife is not explicit in the Torah. We derive it from the word She'er, but according to Rav, this law is only Midrabanan. Uh, however, this is an amazing thing. The rabbis wanted to strengthen their Dirabanan law, so they made it even stronger than a Torah law. According to Rav, if I make a condition against the Torah law, the condition is valid. But I don't have to worry about the authority of the Torah being diminished. The Torah can hold its own. But a Dirabanan law where its authority is not self-evident. The rabbis have to work hard to convince people to accept the authority of a Dirabanan law. Therefore, if people are going to make conditions against the Dirabanan law, the Dirabanan law will be seen in, in lower esteem. And therefore, the rabbis have to come and make a Dirabanan law even stronger by saying that if you make a condition against a Dirabanan law, it, the condition is invalid. So that's what Rav thinks. So Rav, in the end, bottom line, does think that if someone makes a condition that I'm, the husband says, I'm going to, uh, uh, I won't inherit your property, I want to give that to you, uh, that does not work. Not because you can't make a condition to Torah, you can make a condition against the Torah, but this is a Dirabanan law, and you cannot make a condition against a Dirabanan law. Okay, so that's the first explanation 
But it's problematic. The Sabbat Rav Kayam. Does Rav really think that if it were a Torah law, the condition would be valid? That that contradicts someone. Something else he said. Let's say I sell you something and I overcharge you. Uh, it's uh, during coronavirus and I charge you triple for a toilet paper. And I say, normally, if I charge you triple for a basic item like that, you can come and claim, come back and claim, hey, you overcharged me and I want the money back. But let's say I know that you might do that. So I say, I'm selling you this and I'm telling you, I am overcharging you. I'm ripping you off. But I'm going to sell it to you on condition that you have no claim of ona'a, of uh, monetary wrongdoing against me. And you cannot come back and claim that I overcharged you. Does that work? Now, this is a Torah law. Ona'a is right there in Vayikra. And Rav says that you can still come and claim Ona'a, meaning if I make a condition against the Torah, the condition is invalid. Uh, Shemuel this is the one that says that the condition is valid. I said on condition is no Ona'a, so then you lose your claim to Ona'a. So we see from here that Rav thinks that if someone makes a condition against the Torah, the condition is invalid. And so we just said that he, Rav disagrees with Rashbag, his reasoning, in that Rashbag says, a condition against the Torah is invalid, and Rav says it is valid, but here we see Rav himself also says the condition is not applicable. So that can't be the explanation. Let's try number two. Ella, halacha kadaban shabam megam liel damara matnea mashikotu batorat teno batel. So rather, must be that Rav agrees with Rashbag that if someone makes a condition against the Torah, the, to- the condition is invalid. That's what we just proved from that statement of Rav. Velav mi ta'ameh, and what does it mean not, for his, not because of his reasoning? Whereas Ashbag says, in the case where the husband makes such a condition and she dies, he inherits it anyway because the condition is invalid. And Av disagrees with the halacha and he thinks that if she dies, he does not inherit her. And for whatever, some reason, some other reason, the condition is valid. Now this can't be. Uh, it doesn't even doesn't even work with the criteria that we set out. Hi, mitame vela kehilchetehu. This is the opposite. Here, Rav agrees with the reasoning of Rashbag. He agrees with the basic principle, but the bottom line, he disagrees. It doesn't really even explain why he would disagree. But this is the opposite of what we're looking for. We're looking for an explanation of Rav, where the bottom line would be the same, but the reasoning, the reasoning principle would be different. So this is the wrong way around. So this is not good either. Ella, halacha, third try. It must be, yeah, the bottom line of Rav is the same as Rashbag's bottom line. If she dies first, he does inherit. He gets it. But for a different reason. Rashbag's reasoning is that this is a Torah law inheritance, and if you're making condition against the Torah, it's null and void. That's why it's null and void here. But were it a Drabanan law, then the condition it would be valid. A Torah is stronger. You can't make a condition against the Torah. You can make a condition against the Drabanan according to Rashbag. Whereas Rav thinks that even in a rabbinic law, 
the condition is invalidated and so this um, so here we see that the bottom line is the same although the principle behind it uh, of when is a when is a condition invalid Rav disagrees uh, in in that in, in that case okay now this also is rejected wait this is the same as Rav's, Rav's reasoning and his halacha because according to this explanation we're still saying that the uh, inheritance law is the oraita that a husband inherits his wife and so therefore regarding the inheritance case that's a doraita and that Rav agrees with the bottom line that he still inherits and for the same reason because he can't make a condition against the Torah there's just another uh, point on which Rav adds something else that Rav thinks that you can also cannot make a condition against the Rabbanan where Ashbag thinks you can but that is a separate law that is not related to this law over here so in regarding this law of inheritance Rav would still agree with the bottom line and with the reasoning behind it so this does not fit the criteria Allah here's the bottom here's the final answer halakha kadaban shimon ben gamliel damar imeta yirashena Okay, so the bottom line, Rav agrees with Rashbag that if she dies first, he nevertheless inherits, even though he made that condition. When we say, not for the same reason, here's what it means. Rashbag thinks that the law of a husband inheriting is a deoraita law. And, and if you make a condition, the, and the Torah law, the condition is not valid. That's his reasoning. That's why the husband inherits. Rav, however, disagrees uh, fundamentally. He thinks that the inheritance law, that a husband has a right to inherit from his uh, wife, even though it doesn't say explicitly in the Torah, that's only the Rabbanan law. Nevertheless, Rav thinks that the condition is invalid because if someone, according to him, if someone makes a condition against the sages, we make it stronger like Torah, both in the Torah law and the Rabbanan law. The condition is invalid. So it ends up being the same. Rashbag thinks it's a Doraita law. And only in a Doraita law the condition would be invalid. So it's invalid. Uh, Rav thinks that it's a Drabanan law. But in any Drabanan law, he thinks a condition is invalid as it were, would be also if it were a Doraita law. And so that would make sense. That's the same condition. Same bottom line for different reasons. Okay, good. Now that we established that, we just want to ask more further about what Rav really thinks. Does he really think that the husband uh, um, acquire, uh, inheriting his wife is only the banan? It's a bit of a cryptic statement here. Um, it's a Mishnah in Bechorot that according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Beroka, Tana, Rav is going to have to agree with this, um, someone who inherits his wife, he has to return that property that he inherited to his wife's family, his wife has died, died, but he has to return it to his family, and they will have to pay for it, but he deducts some of the payment. Now, what does this mean? So, we analyze this. This is all, all part of the question challenge to Rav. My um, kasabar, what exactly does this does Rabbi Yochanan ben Baraka think? He kasabar yirushtatabal deoraita amayachazir. If he thinks that a husband's right to inherit is a doraita law, then why should he have to give it back? We're assuming it means during the yovel, when all land goes back to its original owner. 
So he had it temporarily, but he has to give it back. Wait a second. If he inherits it on the right level, he should not have to. He should not have to give it back. So it can't be that. And if the right of the husband to inherit is only the rabbanan, that means on the deoraita level, it really belongs to the family, her family. If it really on the deoraita level belongs to her family, why should they have to pay any money for it? So uh, either way, we cannot explain all the clauses in this Mishnah. And Rav said that really it is Doraita. This is why we have a challenge, because where the answer before was assuming that according to Rav, a husband's inheriting is a Drabanan. But here Rav says it's actually Doraita. Okay, so that's going to be the contradiction that we're going to have to ask, uh, solve. But first, let's explain that Mishnah. So really, the husband acquires this property on the Doraita level, and therefore he doesn't actually, he shouldn't have to give it back. But we're talking about a case, for example, that he inherited a cemetery, his wife's family cemetery. Right there, the, the, her maiden name is the Freedmans. So now he's Mr. Cohen. Mr. Cohen is, in, is inherited the Freedman family cemetery. It doesn't make any sense. The cemetery should go to the Freedmans. Uh, so, but by law, by Doraita law, Mr. Cohen, the husband, uh, inherits it. But uh, but the rabbi said, this is uh, uh, this is not nice for the family. It's a family flaw that, look, our family plots are going to be in the hands of someone who's not part of the family. That doesn't make sense. So the rabbi said, uh, you know what? The family should pay. They have to pay because by the right law, it belongs to the husband. So they should pay. And he should return the the entire cemetery to them. Okay, what does it mean that he should decrease some of the price, right? If the price of the cemetery is um, uh, one million dollars, he should take a little less. Why should he get take a little less? The price of his wife's grave. Since a husband has a responsibility to pay for his wife's grave, so if there's a thousand graves, each worth a thousand dollars for a million, but his wife's grave, the family shouldn't have to pay for, the husband himself has to pay for. So we conduct one one thousand from the million price. They pay the rest of it, and he gives back the and he gives he sells sells them the cemetery. Had we know that a family has a right to their own burial plot from this baraita, someone who sells a burial plot or a, a path to get to get to there or ma'amado uh, they had the custom in the olden days that they would uh, stand and eulogize at various spots along the way um, so that's the the place where they stand or the places where they eulogize that all has to be used by the family so they have a right to all those spots um, so the family can come and bury their family member who died, who has a reservation in that in that uh, cemetery. So the family then would have to have a right to buy back 
the cemetery, even though some member of the family, for some reason, sold it to this other guy. They said, this is our family burial plot. So they can force him to sell it back to them, and that way they can bury their dead there. Um, because otherwise, it's a shame to the family. All right, so we see from here that they can force it. And now the main point is that I've uh, explained this Mishnah by saying that the uh, land, uh, that the law of a husband inheriting is a Deoraita law. And that goes against our answer, our final answer before, that he, where Rav said it was Rabbanan. So the answer is, Rav When Rav said the statement here to explain the Mishnah Bechorot, he was giving the explanation according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Beroka, who was the author of that, Mish, of that opinion in the Mishnah. He was just explaining, according to him, a husband inheriting is a Doraita law. But Rav himself thinks that the law is Midirabanan, and so now everything is reconciled. All right, now we have a fascinating case of a three way pull on certain property. A person dies, and now there's three people that are claiming the very same uh, uh, property that he has. Number one, he leaves a wife, and the wife says, I want my ketubah payment. She deserves it. He also leaves a creditor. He owed somebody money, so the creditor comes and says, I want my payment. He also has his the orphans, his uh, sons, they're not necessarily children orphans, doesn't matter what age they are, but they are the inheritors. So they say, we, we deserve all of this, all of this uh, property. Okay, now, And specifically, we're not talking about any land he has, but rather, uh, he has a certain item. He has a nice vase that he gave as a deposit. Uh, to to a to another yet another party, or he has a credit that someone else owes him, uh, in accounts receivable uh, by some other person. So who deserves to get paid first? Right? Who who deserves to take this movable item? Rabbi Tafon says, we give it to the fallen among them, or in other words, the weakest among them. Uh, right now, we're going to assume this means we give it to the one who's most needy. If uh, it's the widow, uh, for example, she, is, uh, she has nothing else uh, besides this, and she needs it the most, and she gets it. But or if it's the creditor, and he has, he's very, very poor, and he did it the most, then we give it to him. That's Rabbi Tarfan. Rabbi Akiva Omer and Merachamin Bedin. Rabbi Akiva says, you can't have mercy when you're making judgment. Just because a person is more needy doesn't mean you give him something that does not, does not belong to him. The Torah says, Lo right? you don't give favor even to a poor person. Poor person right? When you're giving judgment, you have to give it to the person who deserves it, whether they're rich or poor. says that money, that either that item or that accounts receivable, once that guy pays, all always goes to the orphans because the other two have to give an oath. Whenever someone owes someone money, um, if he dies and then all the property goes to the orphans, that guy has to go to the orphans and swear that your father owed me money. And therefore, you should pay me um, because the you know the original person that owed that owed was uh, that owed was the father. The father's not around, so you have to you have to give extra proof that you in fact owe, are owed this money. 
So therefore, whereas the, the creditor or the wife, they have to bring an oath before they can get paid. So they have a higher level of proof required, whereas the orphans, everything automatically goes to them. Everything that the father had, land and movables. So therefore, they have the strongest claim and therefore always go to the orphans and then the, the wife and the creditor will have to go to the orphans, make their case and try to receive the money from them. Okay, that's case one in the Mishnah. Case two, similar. If a person dies and he left detached fruit, if it was attached, it would be part of the land, but this is detached, it's just sitting there. Um, so, according to the Bitarfan, whoever grabs it first, he gets it, or she. Uh, if it's the widow, then she can take it for her. She gets it first, she takes it, and she can use that to as payment for her ketubah. If it's the creditor that the deceased man owed money to, if he gets it first, he can use it. If the orphans get it first, then they get it. So now we're dealing with a, yet a subcase. If his wife, the wife goes and she takes all this fruit, and it's enough to pay her ketubah, plus even more, she takes more than was required. Or the creditor, he takes the amount of his debt plus more. He takes all the fruit, and it's even more than he was owed. What about that extra amount? It should go to whoever is the weakest of them. So the basic amount they will, their person will keep, and the added amount... They, we, we give it to the person that's in the most need. Rabbi Akiva Omed and Merachamin Bedin. Rabbi Akiva says, that's not fair, even regarding the base amount. Rabbi Akiva, we're going to see, is going to disagree. Rather, it always goes to the orphans because the other two, the wife, and the creditor, they have to make a, a claim. They have to make a swear before they can remove something from the orphans. So the second the guy dies, all this property, including all this fruit, goes to the orphans. And therefore, we remove all of the fruit, even the amount that's equal to the loan or to the ketubah, and we give it all to the orphans, and they're going to have to go make a claim against the orphans. All right. So that's the two cases that are similar. First we ask, Within the first clause of the Mishnah, it said that uh, the husband who, uh, who died, he either, it gives two subcases, either he had a loan, uh, accounts receivable that someone owed him money, or he had some item, a vase, that he had uh, given to someone. Why do we need both of these examples? Why don't why not just mention one and I can learn the other one from it? And the answer is Siricha. Ditana Milve Behakamar Rebi Tarfon. Bishum de Milve Lohsa If you had only said alone, I would say Rebi Akiva taught his law that um, whoever takes it uh, that whoever needs it the most is the one that gets it, and the orphans don't get it because don't necessarily get it. The orphans don't get it because um, uh, a loan is there to be extracted. In other words, it's not an item that's actually there. So when the guy dies, it's not like the accounts receivable is not an an existent thing that can go to the orphans. It's just money that is owed. So once uh, if the um, uh, the wife can go and get the money 
paid, so then it'll go straight to her, right? It's accounts receivable. It's not cash. It's not an item. So I might think that that's where the Bitarfon says, oh, fine, the wife can keep it. But if it's an actual item like a vase, since it's uh, you can see it, you can touch it, and there maybe the Bitavon would agree with Rabbi Akiva that the second the guy dies, the orphan inherits all of his property, including the movable items. And this is an item that exists, so it goes directly to the orphans, and once it's it belongs to the orphans, the wife or the creditor can't go and take it, they're just stealing it. So I might have thought that. That's why I have to mention the um, the picadon that even a bitarfon would agree that the wife or the creditor can go in and get paid from it. Vitanaha, and whereas if I only had the case of picadon, I might think Akiva. In that case, Akiva said it goes that goes right to the inherit right to the inheritors, cause an actual item. So any items go to inheritors. That's why it goes to them, and no one else can take it. but in a loan, Since a loan is not an, is not an, an item that exists, you can't and you can't inherit accounts receivables. Uh, he maybe in that case. Rabbi Akiva would agree with Rabbi Talfon that if the wife or the creditor go and grab it, they take, they get it because it doesn't go directly to the orphans. So, Sericha, I need this case too to teach me that Rabbi Akiva would disagree even in the case of a loan. They disagree in both cases. Okay, now, my Lakoshel, when Rabbi Talfon said, it goes to the weakest. Who is the fallen or the weakest of them? What does that mean? It goes to not the weakest, doesn't mean the poorest, but rather it means the one with the weakest proof. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret it. That, interpret this. Let's follow the reef that explains. This means the person who has the weakest claim, that would be the creditor. Because in order for him to collect, he's going to have to come and bring a, a contract that shows, hey, this guy owed me money. Whereas a bride, even though she has a ketubah, she doesn't actually have to produce a ketubah. Because even if she doesn't have it, we assume it. And he, they would have to, they, they would have to pay, he would have to pay anyway. Uh, so therefore, the one with the weakest proof, we give him, the first right, because she, we assume, will be able to collect her money anyway from the orphans. But she has a stronger right. The one with the weakest right, since they'll have the hardest time taking the orphans to court to get his money, so this item that's uh, accounts receivable, he can go and collect it. That's the bitarfon, not the weakest, the poorest, but rather the weakest, um, mean the weakest proof, uh, which will usually be the creditor. Rabbi Yochanan says, no, no, it goes always to to pay for the wife's contract. She is the what's called the weakest because of favor. You know, it's hard, it's difficult for a woman to who's a widow. She's going to have to go and come to court. It's not easy for her, but rather we want to give her favor, especially in uh, the eyes, um, give her favor uh, in the eyes of men so that when a woman is going to go and get married, she's going to say, wait, am I ever going to get my, get my kituva paid? So if we say, listen, you get the first right to go and collect should your husband die before any of the other creditors so she'll be she'll she'll feel favored and therefore she'll be more agreeable to marry so uh, this is a good idea uh, that a woman who normally would be the weakest in having the hardest time to go collect um, uh, will we give it to her so uh, because uh, to, to do her a favor okay so that's the two opinions these two opinions of Amoraim 
are parallel to two tanaim ketanae. Rabbi Binyamin Omer Lakoshel Sheber Ayah. Rabbi Binyamin says, regardless of the weakest proof, and that usually would be the creditor. And that's the right thing to do. Rabbi Elazar says, no, it goes to the woman. That's the that's called the the weakest. She we wanna we wouldn't want her to have a hard time. She's a widow. She's going through a lot, and so we wanna give her favor um, and uh, give her the first right to collect that loan. Okay. Now we get to the second half of the Mishnah, which was a case where, uh, not that he had a picadon or a loan, but he left some fruit, movable items, out there in his own field, not in someone else's uh, uh, house. But it be, oh, actually, we're going to discuss where it is, actually, where exactly. Uh, now we ask, why is the Mishnah talking about a case where they took extra? The wife took the amount of her ketuvah plus more, or the the creditor took the amount of his loan plus more. For according to the Biakiva, why 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 are you bothering uh, to talk about a case of extra? It's the entire amount goes to the orphans. The base amount that is covers her ketubah plus the extra. So just say everything. So we say, in fact, in achiname, you're right. According to Rabbi Akiva, it all goes to the uh, orphans. But since Rabbi Tarfan, his law was only about the surplus. That according to him, whoever grabs it first gets it up to the amount that they are owed. And then the surplus goes to the weaker, whatever weaker means. So since Rabbi was focusing on the extra, so Rabbi Akiba also used the term extra, even though Rabbi Akiba actually disagrees with Rabbi Tafon completely and says all of the money, all of the fruit goes to the orphans. Rabbi Akiba, tefisa la mehanya kelal, so now we ask, according to the Biakiva, does Biakiva think that seizure has not effective at all? Um, after all, we have a, a general law that uh, the seizure of a debtor's assets by a creditor, when there's other creditors around who might have a more immediate uh, right to the assets. So if I owe money to three people and one I, um, I, I, I borrowed from last week, and one three days ago, and one yesterday. So the one that I borrowed money from first, they have the first right to take my assets. So that's true. If I went to court, that's what would happen. But if the one who I borrowed from yesterday um, jumps the gun and just goes and grabs whatever assets I have, then he gets it. That's a general law. Does Rabbi Akiba not agree with that law that seizure works? Rav Nachman, in the name of Rav Nachman, explains that's only when the debtor is alive, right? So if I'm alive and oh, I you know I, I get some some cash and I'm walking around with this cash uh, from the, from the ATM and then any of the creditors comes and grabs it then it's theirs, even if it's not the one that's first in line. Um, but after someone has died, then, oh, that's, uh, that, so Rabbi Akiva would agree, when someone's alive, the law of seizure works. But after someone dies, no, Rabbi Akiva says, once a person dies, then all of his money and assets goes to the, uh, to the inheritors, and the seek law of seizure does not work. Now, according to the Bitarfon, who says that the seizure does work even after death, where is this fruit exactly? 
רב ושמואל למד את המלט הלוואי, הוא שסיבודים מונחים ברשות הרבים. רב ושמואל say, this seizure only works if it's in the public domain. So it's basically, hefker, anyone who can come, come and take it because it's not just in the middle of nowhere. אבל בסמטה לה, but if it's an alleyway, a place that it's not private property, but many people don't go there, so it's somewhat private, it's kind of an in-between, that's the case where, uh, in, in that case, it would go to the inheritors. So, according to Rav and Shemuel, they're limiting Rabbi Tadfan to only if it's in the public, that's why anyone can come and take it. But if it's uh, somewhat protected, Inheritors would get it. Rabbi Yochanan Beresh Shakish Tamirat Harvayu Afilu Besimta. Rabbi Yochanan Beresh Shakish, they're from Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi Shmuel from Bavel. So the rabbis of Eretz Yisrael say, both say, even if it's in um, uh, in an alley, anyone who comes and and seizes it, takes it, acquires it, whether it's the widow or the creditor, so they interpret Rabbi Tarfon more expansively. Okay, now we have an interesting machloket between Resh Akish and Rabbi Yochanan themselves. You know, they agreed on this interpretation. They disagree regarding should we follow halacha like Rabbi Tarfon or like Rabbi Akiva. So Don Dayne Kerebi Tarfon. There were some judges and there was a case like this that came up and they decided the law like Rabbi Tarfon. Let's say the widow came and, and grabbed it first. They said she gets it. The, sorry, so right, so they, they, the judges said she gets it well, as Rabbi Tarfon said. But then Hadrashakish heard what the judges said. Shakish is Gadol Ador. So he heard that and he overturned, he's likely superior court. And he overturned what the lower judges said. And they said, sorry, the inheritors get it and gave it back to them. So there we go. Reshakish is going to follow Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yochanan criticizes Reshakish, his colleague. And he said, what, you made this law like a Torah law? So in general, if judges go against a Torah law, then you have to overturn their judgment because that's completely wrong. You can't let it go. But if they overturn something that there's just a machloket about, it could be this way, it could be that way, but it's not a Torah law, then you should not overturn it. So Rabbi Al-Khanan saying, what, the, the law that is like Rabbi Akiva, is that like a Torah law? Right? Even if Lecha I would agree with you, fine. They should have said like, so like Rabbi Akiva. But now that they filed the Bitarfon, you don't overturn a judgment based on this. It's not a Torah law. So Rabbi Al-Khanan felt that we should, we can follow Rabbi Tarfan. If someone follows Rabbi Tarfan, leave it, it's okay. So now, what's the essence of their machloket? Lema bahakami palge. Demor sabar ta'abid bar mishnah hozer. Omor sabar ta'abid bar mishnah eno hozer. Perhaps Shakish thinks that if you uh, make an error in a, in a matter of mishnah, mishnah here doesn't necessarily mean the mishnah as a book as we have it, um, because they are tanaim, so they lived before there was even a text called the mishnah, but rather means a matter of oral law, not a doraita, something written in the Torah that's explicit, but rather something that's only a matter of the Torah Shabbat. According to the Shakish, if a judge makes a mistake in such a matter, that's still very serious, and you have to overturn it. And that's why the Shakish overturned it. Whereas Rabbi Akiba thinks that only if it's a Torah law, you overturn it. But if it's just an oral law, then we do not overturn it. So that's why he felt they should leave, leave it as Rabbi Tarfon.
Okay, so that's the, that's the first explanation. Then we reject that. Lo dekula alma, not necessarily. Ta'abidvar mishnah chozer. Could be everyone agrees that even if it's an oral law, it has to be has to be reversed. But this is the essence of the machloket. Rabbi Yochanan thinks that the halacha follows Rabbi Akiva if it's in tension with his colleague, uh, but not with his teacher. And here, Rabbi Tarfon was senior to Rabbi Akiva. He's a generation before. And so therefore, halacha, in general, it does follow Rabbi Akiva if it's with an equal, but not with a senior. So therefore, halacha follows Rabbi Tarfon, the senior. Whereas, Rishakish said, the halacha follows Rabbi Akiva always even against his teacher. And so that's why he said, And that's why he overturned the judges. Okay, so that is one possibility. I guess we didn't like the possibility that we leave a mistake in Mishnah as it is, right? We wanted to, to say no. An oral law is still very important, and so it should be overturned. So this is one way uh, that they're arguing essentially about this principle of Akiva versus his 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 teacher or who wins or another explanation maybe everybody agrees that in fact only against this colleague but not against uh, a senior so therefore Allah really should be the bitter fun but Whereas one, Rabbi Yochanan, thinks that Rabbi Tarfon, in fact, was a teacher of Rabbi Akiva, and that's why Halakha is going to follow Rabbi Tarfon. Whereas Shakish thought that their colleagues, even though Rabbi Tarfon was older than Rabbi Akiva, nevertheless, in their level of authority, they were equals, and Halakha follows Rabbi Akiva. Or another answer. Maybe everybody agrees that they're like colleagues and therefore halacha should follow Rabbi Akiva. Whereas Reshakish thought that the rule is the, with the word halacha. The halacha follows Rabbi Akiva versus his colleagues. And that's an ironclad rule. You have to follow Rabbi Akiva over his colleagues. And so that's why he, he overturned the judges. Can't follow Rabbi you have to follow Biakiba. Whereas Rabbi Yochanan, Morsabar, Matin Itamar, his version of the rule of who to follow doesn't say the halacha is uh, for sure follows uh, Rabbi Akiba always, but rather means we incline towards Rabbi Akiba. It's more like a rule of thumb. Usually, generally, we'd like to incline the law towards Rabbi Akiba, but you don't have to in every case for sure. There could be exceptions. It's only a general inclination. So therefore, here, these judges, they follow Rabbi Tarfon. It's okay. You can let it go. But the Avad, it's only an inclination, uh, but not an absolute rule. So it's okay to follow Rabbi Tarfon. Okay, so now we saw in general that Rabbi Yochanan uh, will allow for Rabbi Tarfon, maybe even agrees with Rabbi Tarfon, depending on which of those answers. And now we're going to see a couple of stories uh, where this, these, are, these different opinions are applied in practice. Okay, here we see the problem with the judge being related 
uh, to the litigants and, uh, you know, does it color their judgment? So here, these are relatives of Rabbi Yochanan who seized a cow from orphans. The orphan's father owed them money. The guy died and they go and they take this cow in payment for their loan. Now, is that valid? Can you seize property uh, that would that should go to the orphans? So, according to the B'Tarfan, yes. According to the B'Akiva, no, it all goes to the orphans. So, let's see what happens. Atula Shapir said, that's good, you seized it, you can keep it. In other words, he's assuming like it would be Tarfan. Now, it happens to be that this is for the benefit of his own relatives. But we saw before, this is his general opinion. So he says, yes, keep it. Then they came to Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish. Maybe the orphans did because they weren't happy with that outcome. They, but they both come together. They, the ones that seized it also uh, go, go there. And Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish says, you got to return that cow. It belongs to the orphans. You're not allowed to keep it. So now these relatives, they go back to the Biochanan and they say, Hey, the Shakish told us we, that we have to return it. You said we can keep it. You know, can you uh, tell the tell Shakish what you said so that we can keep it? Rabbi Yochanan says, Sorry, what can I do? Right? Someone else who is like me, my stature, my colleague, he disagrees with me. So although I gave you my opinion, but that's not everybody's opinion, so uh, you have to listen to him. Okay, so we see that Rabbi Yochanan, maybe he recused himself precisely because he was a relative, and he said, listen, yeah, you have to follow um, uh, my colleague, Rashakish, who's independent opinion. Uh, maybe that was the uh, that was the general practice. So, a uh, fantastic story. Another story, Ahu bakara de tafse Torah mine. It was a herdsman, he's taking care of the cattle of, of for orphans, and then some creditor that the, the father of these orphans owed him money, he comes and takes one of the animals. So the one that was owed money, the one who seized these, this animal, he says, I seized it when the father was still alive. And we saw that everyone agrees uh, that if you seize, even if Akiva agrees, that if you seize it when they're alive, then that's fine. You're allowed to do that. Uh, but the herdsman said, no, he seized it after death. And we're following Rabbi Akiva here. Um, and therefore, it goes, all, everything goes to the orphans and one's not allowed to seize it. So that's the two sides. They came to Rav Nachman for judgment. Rav Nachman asks the herdsman, do you have witnesses? Do you have proof that they seized it? They just came and, and they took it? No, I don't have any witnesses that that happened. So Rahman says, since they could have had a different claim, an easier claim, the these guys, the, uh, the the creditors, could have said that we bought it. You know, what are we doing? What are you doing with this animal? We bought it from uh, from the father while he was alive, and that's it. They wouldn't have to bring any further proof. The item is in their is in their possession. Since they had a claim that they could have would have been believed, so we use amigo logic. Therefore, they are believed to say, yes, we seized it, but we seized it from the father when he was alive, and therefore they get to keep it.
Okay, question on that. This migo is based on the concept of hazaka. There's something, if it's in your possession, then you can just claim, yeah, it's mine because I, I bought it. I don't have to bring any proof. That's true regarding uh, other items like land or, or an item that doesn't move by itself. But... Uh, sheep and oxen, they walk around by themselves and maybe they just wandered over into my possession and all of a sudden I claim, oh, I bought it. So hazaka, possession, is not a proper claim when you're talking about sheep uh, that move around. And we answer, No, this they stolen, that what they seized is an ox. An ox is different from other animals because an ox is an important item and it's handed over to the shepherd to watch it carefully to make sure it doesn't wander off. It's a big animal and it's worth a lot of money. So he's going to take careful, uh, make, be careful that no, it doesn't wander off. And therefore, um, if someone does possess an ox, we assume it didn't just wander there, but rather he got it in some proper way. If he says, I bought it, he is believed to say he, he bought it, and therefore the Migo works. Last story for today. Uh, some members of the Nasi's house, uh, the, he's the head of, his head of the Jewish community in Israel. They seized a maidservant from uh, orphans. They were owed money from, from the father, and the father never paid, so they go, and just like you can seize property, they seize this maidservant um, uh, from an alleyway. The, these three rabbis were all sitting together. Rabbi Abhu like, seems to be the head of them um, together. And Rabbi Abaz also happens to be sitting with them as a guest. So you have these three that they seem to always be together and they're acting as judges here. Amalehu Shapir Tafistuha. The case came before them and they, the judges, Rabbi Abhu, who's head of the judges, said, you did right, uh, the, the members of the household. You seized what's coming to you, even though it's from orphans. So in other words, they're following Rabbi Tarfan that, yes, you can seize a movable item from an alleyway. Rabbi Abba, who was a guest sitting with them, he criticizes these judges. What? Because they are the people from the prince's house? That's why you're giving them favor to say that they can keep this maidservant and you're give, allowing them to, to, to have it? You're, you're trying to flatter them? That's not, 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 not proper. After all, remember that case we saw, we said earlier that there were judges who followed the Tarfon and said they can keep it, the ones who seized it. But Rishakish told the, overturned the ruling and said, no, you got to follow Rabbi Akiba. And, um, uh, and overturn the ruling. So, so you see, based on that, that we follow Rabbi Akiba. That's the proper ruling. And you, you should know better, and you seem to have used favoritism, and that's why you're following Rabbi Tarfon. Okay, that's the end of the story. With, we, we just end the story on, uh, on a challenge. I'm not sure if they agreed or not. Uh, but we see that this uh, was a long-range and heated debate uh, for all of these generations. And uh, more stories about this tomorrow. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen v'amen.